I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. these fucking zoo crew motherfuckers that are screaming yeah. and playing like clown horns at yeah. you. And it's like, if you're somebody zoo who crew. there's a greater than zero chance has a hangover, then that's just like water torture. Well, and then also uh, you're probably, you're probably there doing publicity for something you've talked to 127,000 other people about <laughs> yeah, and talked about the same points and you've had your press agent shepherding you from place to place every 15 minutes. I mean... Uh, That's the other thing, too, is the thing, if you're, it's like an MCU or some other larger nerd property, there's this level of enthusiasm that you're required to have for it. Yes. And a level of lore knowledge that nerds have put on actors that is really unreasonable that's like that's what always makes Harrison Ford so refreshing to me. Yeah, because he doesn't give a fuck. I <laughs> I love the that level of not giving a fuck where he goes in there and pops their balloon with a with a pin and just goes, I don't care. I my favorite this is a bit where somebody asked him if Han shot first or Greedo shot first, and he just goes, I don't I don't care. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I love him in that moment because this is the thing unreasonable nerds have, which is that we, we expect people that are doing a job to love the job as much as fans of that right. stuff has. Right. And you just have to ask yourself, how many jobs have you had that you were a big fan uh, right, of? Right. Right. <laughs> well, and I think that there's also this expectation that everybody should care about the shit they care about mm -hmm. at the same level. And it's like, no, dude. You can also be really, really good at a job and not give a shit. Yes. Um, Marlon Brando is amazing in Superman the movie. Yes, he didn't learn he his lines. He was reading off shit. of cue cards, and his performance is great. I mean, I think that's kind of the beginning of the end for Brando, where he was just like, <laughs> Have you, listen, I'm offer only. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be Marlon fucking Brando. If you don't like that... I don't fucking because uh, he like in the story that he showed up to Apocalypse Now and he had gained like a hundred pounds, <laughs> and that's why they have to shoot him in the hut is because right. like he was supposed to be this like rocked out fucking like he was supposed to be on the waterfront Brando and he sure. turned up and he was Island of Doctor Moreau Brando and they're yeah. like we, we can't use this. There's um, uh, oh, oh. There's, but th that's the thing that's interesting though is this expectation. I was thinking about this before. Um, I think Casey and I were talking about this as it as it pertained to like Steven Seagal, who is famous for being a terrible person. Yes. I mean, the dollop podcast did a three part episode. It's probably six hours long. And a lot of it is just cataloging the history life and what a fucking monster Steven Seagal is. Yeah. yeah but he's a there's, garbage person. There's, there's a famous story that, I mean, one, he just lies about his background, but <laughs> I mean, he's like, he trained CIA agents and he personally fought the Yakuza at his dojo in Japan <laughs> yes. and won their respect. I mean, there's all this stuff that's just bullshit. He was like a Navy SEAL. And 
all of it's put to the lie when he's on a movie set and they need him in a speedboat and he looks like he's going to piss his pants while yes. he's in a speedboat. <laughs> yes. But there's a story, I think it was Gene LaBelle, who's like a martial artist and stunt guy, was on set doing stunt work on a lot of his movies. And, uh, you know, Steven Seagal started bragging about how he had trained his body to the point that he was immune to being choked. <laughs> and the thing is if you have a throat you're not immune to yeah yeah you're not that, that's that's that is the only ingredient that you need to be choked is a throat and um gene labelle decided to take him up on it because oftentimes when you're a when you're a phony and you're an action phony you're a martial arts phony you tend to be in professional settings surrounded by people who aren't phonies yes right and one yes. of them will decide to take you up on on this challenge that you've thrown down and apparently gene labelle said i bet you i could choke you out and the word is and apparently this is this makes me like gene labelle more because apparently gene labelle didn't go around telling this story he let everyone else go around telling this story right which is the action of a true badass <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to carry your story forth others will Apparently, he choked out Steven Seagal immediately, and Steven Seagal allegedly pooped his pants. Right. Oh, yes, I've heard that story before. I think we can all hope oh. that it's actually true. But I, it kind of came back to me that there are two qualities that a human being can have. And we were talking about Brando uh, being a fucking asshole, being impossible to work with, not learning his lines on Superman the movie and reading off of cue cards. But then when you see the movie, he fucking delivers. That he's an asshole, yes, but he's yes. also really good at what he does. And I think the two qualities that you can have in isolation, but not together, are you can be an asshole. Where if you really are like Brando, and it's like nobody likes working with you, it's a nightmare to be here, but the end result is something that you're kind of wowed by. It's like probably the reason a lot of people came back and worked with Kubrick. Right. Is that right. it's... By all accounts, if you just see the footage, and we said this in film school, we watched the behind-the-scenes footage of The Shining, and just the awful shit that oh, yeah, Kubrick yeah. would do to someone like, say, Shelley Duvall to get the proper, crazed, scared-for-your-life-my-husband's-chasing-me-with-an-axe performance out of her. Where he's basically gaslighting her. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, like, it's one thing when you're using your singular vision to construct the pit of like a b2 bomber using magazine clippings and you are so driven that you do it so well that the military is like who let you know what this looks like yeah it's another thing when you're dealing with a person because yeah. people are not props and i think to kubrick everybody just was a prop yeah and i think but but the thing was the movie was amazing yeah no i mean it's undeniable yes yes that he 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 tortured people and got the best performances of their lives out of them frequently. He would do things that a lot of other, uh, other directors couldn't do. He was an asshole, but because he had that other quality of being really good at his job, I think a lot of people tolerated him and would even get excited to be in his movie. You're like, okay, this is probably going to be the worst six months of my life, but holy shit, I'm going to be in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Right. Right. And then there's the other quality, which is you can be a phony, which is, you can be somebody who is constantly talking up that you have a girlfriend in Canada and that you, we all knew this kid in, in middle school. Like I do have a girlfriend in Canada and I'm really offended that you're calling me out. <laughs> you know, Kirby might listen to this, but the, um, but this, everyone always, 
you know, I'm the greatest martial artist. You know, I actually defeated Bruce Lee in private combat and I once fought the mafia and I defeated them so thoroughly that they decided that I just wasn't worth the trouble. <laughs> um, you know that I, I once fought my way through the my real, name, my real name is actually Mason Storm. Yeah. <laughs> I once meditated so hard that I could see through time and I actually know what's going to, it's like, there's all of this shit. I, you know, I want, you know, it's, it's always bullshit. There's people that are just full of shit. Yes. But if you're a really, really nice person and everyone loves you, I think a lot of people will tolerate your tall sales. You'll basically be like the 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 lead character in Big Fish. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you're right. full of shit. But like I remember when I saw Big Fish in the theater, there's that moment where he starts to tell his son a story about a frozen mammoth, and his son cuts him off because they're in the middle of just this 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 harshness between the two of them. Yes. And the minute he cut off his dad's story, I heard people in the audience of the theater go, "Oh, yeah, right." Well, that's, I think that's what's great about uh, uh, Big Fish, though, is I think I I tend to agree with you, but I also think incident like usually when people tell stories about the genuinely good people in places like Hollywood. They talk about how genuine they are. Yeah. There's very rare, there's a very high incidence of I am a phony and also people hate to work with me. Yeah, that's the thing. But if you had those two qualities together, yes, yeah. if you're an asshole and a phony, I think there's a part of us where we want to see that person exposed because oh, they're right. just, they're a right. bully. That Steven Seagal again was this kind of guy who would take liberties with stunt guys. Guys who often were the thing he what, pretended what to be. They, what did they call it? Uh, this was the I think Quentin Tarantino explained um, his portrayal of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, which Joe doesn't know because Joe hasn't seen it. I've heard about the but, scene, but though. there's he basically invents a scene where one of his characters has like a small, a brief fight with with um, Bruce Lee because he's being a bit of a braggart and like. The, the sort of the Bruce the Bruce Lee family and sort of the thing is it's like you're kind of disrespecting the guy because he's dead and he's this is not based on a real incident and Quentin Tarantino was like well if you understand stuntman history he's I think it's called a tagger um, that there is a certain type of non-stunt lead performer who will actually hit stunt performers when they should be pretending to hit them right instead of simulating right. it they actually do and Bruce Lee was very very hard on stunt performers because he actually would hit them or kick them or throw them down in a, in a harsh way. And so part of the part of the thing was it's like his relationship to the audience was like he's a fucking legend. Right. Um his relationship to the stunt team was probably I really hate that I have to be on set with this guy today, <laughs> you know? Well, and that's yeah, and I find myself wondering if the at least some of that I wonder if it has to do with the difference between the way that martial arts movies are filmed in places like Hong Kong sure. and the way they're filmed here mm. in Hong Kong. Like you're not, you're not fucking around with that. Like, you know, you're not a stunt man. You're like a martial artist that went to like someplace like Peking opera or something. Right. And you were beaten and abused <laughs> into being able to, but do you're the actor like, too. Right. You're right. You're, exactly. the, you're the guy doing it. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. And so I think that that, um, and I also just, I mean, I think Bruce, uh, Bruce Lee is this kind of legendary person, and I don't think people are constructed to know how to handle people. You know, like I think I just I watched um, I watched Roadrunner recently. It's the Anthony oh, yeah. Bourdain documentary, and yeah. it's. I watched it knowing that I was going to hear things that would make him that would not be flattering. Sure. But I think that part of 
I think that you we have like hero worship is a problem because it's really difficult. You know, it's like if Superman existed and you found out that like he yeeted a kitten into the sun once, that would be impossible <laughs> to reconcile. Like, right? You you can't because it's just like, oh, he's not a person. He's this hero. You put him up on a shelf. And I think we do that. And that's problematic because it makes it very hard. And Kubrick is a great example, right? Like Kubrick has made some of my favorite movies of all time. He was an awful person. Hitchcock, same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Hitchcock, masterful director, fucking asshole. Like, yeah, I remember, prime asshole. But I, I, I really am taking the, what you were saying is about, like, the, the sort of phony, genuine part about it is, and maybe the thing about Hollywood and about the entertainment industry in general is, we all, when, when, when we work, like, when we're not in our social, in our family lives or in our, our, like, immediate social lives, we all have, like, the fake it till you make it. I mean, how many people go to a job that they work hourly for and actually are as committed and sort of ideologically aligned with the company they work for? Almost uh, yeah. no one. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone knows that when they're in the workforce, it's like fake it till you make it. And then you add on the extra layer of, well, part of Hollywood is just faking it. Yeah. Like, it's, you're it's faking make, it, you're making it, but, you're, yeah. but you are also just a faker as well. And then you have all the layers of fakers, which are like the producers and stuff. People who actually just really don't have real talent. They right. just are like the personalities that try to insert themselves in it. Right. Um, that's just the breeding ground for creating people who have all bluster and like, yeah. and like yeah. no moves whatsoever. You know? I just heard this story about Russell Crowe, who's kind of a has that reputation for being a hothead, yeah. throwing phones at people and shit. But apparently what he will do when he is on a shoot is... He will find like a local bar if he's been to a city before he has a spot and he'll just rent out their back room and then he will just pay for people to drink with him so that he can drink. (laughs) So like the crew, especially if it's a crew he's worked with before, he just he's like, this is where we'll be. It's our space. We don't have to worry about other people. And uh, we're just going to we're just going to go for it. And then he just picks up the tab. Huh. And I'm like, yeah, it's because nobody is just one thing. <laughs> right. Right. Like right. everybody, you know, we we are all people. We are all subjects to all the bullshit people are subject to. So I think that it is possible. You know, I, John Lennon is somebody that I, I have this discussion with a lot because yeah. John Lennon is one of those people. I was like, oh, he was really into peace and he made such profound music. And I'm like. He was also an adulterer and a a wife beater, and he was awful to his son. But both of those things can be true because people can change as they get older. People can regret the mistakes of their past. So I think that when you look at somebody like Steven Seagal, what you have is like, it's one thing to be a braggadocio early in your career and then kind of have a run in reality where as they interact with the world, as they have experiences. One of the big problems with Hollywood is that you're disconnected from the, re- the consequences. Oh, sure. Uh, but sure. When, you, when you look at somebody like Keanu Reeves, it's impossible to consider who he is as a person in a vacuum, right? He is, because of the, he is who he is because of the experiences mm-hmm. he's had, right? And that has made him a person that thinks deeply about things that has a lot of empathy. And that's why you hear only great stories. Like the, he takes care of the stuntmen on films. He buys a motorcycles, watches, right. He is. So, I mean, he paid for, he basically donated his salary on the, on the matrix sequel so that they could get made. That is the actions of somebody who has experienced things. And so because, uh, because of the things they've experienced, they, he has a lot of empathy, right? And yeah, then somebody right. like Steven Seagal, who's like the exact opposite, where he's just like, 
I have no inherent skill. A producer found me and was like impressed by this, this like um, he lied himself into yeah exactly, fame. and then just came into movies at a time where like the movies he was able to make were huge. Yeah. We're very specific the it thing. Yeah, but there's a reason yeah. he didn't last and there's a reason Arnold is still making movies is right. because Arnold right. wasn't a one-trick pony. Arnold mm-hmm. brought shit to the movies right. he made. Well, and Steven a, Seagal a... just brought broken legs and and gore, which hey, I love those Steven Seagal. Those first like five Steven Seagal movies are Oh yeah. Spaghetti kisses, but yeah. like <laughs> I mean, you know, he is himself especially as he has gotten I feel like the lies he tells get bigger and bigger the further he gets from the public eye because well, he's just like, I need this. I need people to th- be looking at me. There's also this this continuum where the action heroes that were birthed during that sort of peak in the 80s when you could have these mid to small budget action movies that then escalated these huge stars. Yes, yes. Look at where his contemporaries are. Most of them, like... Bruce Willis is his own special category, but like the Bruce Willis and the uh, now Mel Gibson is in the same spot. Sean Claude Van Damme, yeah. Yeah, and and who was in person again that was kind of renowned for being kind of an asshole, right. and then as he got older, seems like he did some reflecting and I, yeah, I think it's because he was able serious. to yeah, he was able to to understand that there's a JCVD that's not me. Yeah, Seagal could yeah. never have done JCVD. No, right. absolutely not. He could never allow that kind of vulnerability. He also seems to be genuinely a sociopath. I mean, God, I'm not even going to get into oh, the, no, 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 no. the avalanche <laughs> of like sexual assault allegations. We've already talked about Steven and... Seagal more than he deserves. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, like, I think the last JCVD movie I saw was The Last Mercenary. It was on Netflix. And so it's like, it's a French language movie. And to some people, that's just it, the same people who like geezer pleasers would probably are just not going to watch that movie because yeah. right. they'd like it's right. in French. But I mean, it's a comedy about him having a son that he didn't know about, but he's also like a weird action guy and it's got all this goofiness. Oh, is in he it. playing himself in it? No, he's playing a like a retired French James Bond. He's like, I used to be this like undercover spy badass and now I'm sort of semi-retired and uh, it turns out that I have a son, like a 20-year-old son or something, and so he sort of has to get reactivated. But it's like goofy and silly and it, he's able to make fun of himself as part of the whole thing and that makes it so much more interesting than like whatever Mel Gibson has out this right, month. It's right. just like, uh, it's so far, so far derived, so derivative from something that would be interesting because it's all cookie cutter and you know, you know what the audience is going to be for. But it. it's a difference between somebody who becomes more reflective as they get older and somebody who kind of hardens and ossifies into a worse version of themselves. Yes. I think as you get older, you do kind of become more of yourself. I know um, I abs- I was actually just talking to somebody about this. Yeah, I that's exactly what I said is you become yourself but more so. Yeah, it's like when you're a baby. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I don't know. I was thinking about this too and I think a lot of these guys are also struggling with legacy and I was thinking about legacy and pop culture immortality and like the Elvis movie just came out. Oh yeah. And it hit me that when we were kids, we probably saw references to Elvis all over the place. Oh, yeah. Before this movie came out, when was the last time you heard anyone talk about Elvis? Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, not not in any kind of, I mean, I hang out with the kind of people that ask, you know, I, I, Elvis is one of those, because I listen to music and, you know, I work with people that are boomers and 
things. But yeah, like, you, there you was, there's been pe- no critical discourse on Elvis for a while. But I mean, Elvis was sort of a boomer phenomenon. Yes, but I yes. think as as Gen Xers, the, all of us, I think either we're late or we're late Gen Xers. Um, I think there is a pop culture generational hard line that we're on one side of and then say like younger millennials and zoomers are on the other side of where there is just some hard differences between the stuff that we watched growing up and them. And I think the internet had a lot to do with it. I think the growing popularity of cable TV had a lot to do with it. Yeah. I think the fact that we watched a lot of syndicated stuff. So I've watched a lot of Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island and a lot of shit that really doesn't hold up because I come from a generation so you turned on TV and that's just what you were going to watch. Right, right. And um, I think now there's a greater sense of choosing something and we're finding out what has pop culture legs and what doesn't. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no reason for me to watch The Brady Bunch. I probably wouldn't have chosen The Brady Bunch as something I would have watched as a kid if it wasn't what was on. The same with Gilligan's Island. There's a reason we don't talk about Gilligan's Island anymore. It's not because it's canceled. You don't don't talk about Gilligan's Island? It's just not good. I talk about Gilligan's Island all the time. But I, I would say if you were to grab a hundred random millennials and zoomers, younger millennials and zoomers, what percentage of them do you think had seen Gilligan's Island? Oh yeah. No, I, I Five, think it's, yeah. It's, four. I think it's very, small. that's even a bit generous. Right. I think, I think the footprint of those things is fairly strange because I think Elvis exists in this really weird space because you have other phenomenons like the Beatles and the beach boys, both of which, I mean, you, the beach boys, pioneered recording techniques and kind of invented this sound that was unlike anything that came before it. And the Beatles with George Martin did very similar things, doing things like recording with orchestras and stuff. But all Elvis really did was sing another culture's music and be hot. Yeah, he was well. He right? was a superstar. Like, he was yeah, probably the exactly. first music superstar. He was the first boy band. Yeah, I, I he mean, did have an amazing voice. He, and... No, he absolutely did, and he was talented. Like uh, being a performer, I think people will discount that, but yeah. performing the way he did that takes talent. But yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. The, the one thing the Elvis movie does is it really tries to paper over a lot of the cultural appropriation issues with Elvis. Yeah, yeah, because um, it is a thorny issue. It's a, um, yeah, yeah. I think it is. And but I was watching that movie and. One one thing that jumped out at me, one, it was one of the rare points where where Tom Hanks is unabashedly playing a villainous character. Oh, yeah. I've heard he's not great in that. Also, I think you get over it after the first, good. like, I just watched it this morning. So, Oh, okay. really? Yeah. Um, I have not seen it yet. The, I haven't seen after it After the first 15 minutes or so, it's kind of like when you watch The Irishman and you get distracted by the de-aging technology. And then but, but when you're an hour in, you just don't notice it anymore. It was, it was a that, weird experience yeah. of, of Tom Hanks making an acting choice where I don't know what Colonel Tom Parker sounded like. I've never right. heard a recording of him. Right. I don't know if I expected him to sound like Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, yes, Mr. Mr. Presley. Ben. I expect you to die. I expect <laughs> you to sing, Mr. Presley. Uh, but it was it was a strange experience I had, though, is realizing that there was a lot of stuff that we grew up with. Like we were weirdly aware of like thirties and fifties pop culture, even just its appearances in Bugs Bunny cartoons. Sure, yes. Sure. Um, and older movies. We, we had seen a lot of stuff when we were kids that just didn't carry over because I think younger generations had so much new stuff that as all these new channels came out. Um, so I'm somebody who has this hard cultural line. I have no idea anything about power Rangers or Pokemon or, 
Uh, all of these things are half of the shows on the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon with a lot of the young teen stars. I don't really know any of that stuff, but there are people that are just five to ten years younger than me that have just a completely different context. It really feels like this KT boundary. And I don't think anyone on the other side of that line really thinks about Elvis as this immortal figure that will always be around, that will always be culturally important the same way that, like Madonna was that way in the 1980s and 90s. And then somewhere around the 2000s, it was kind of like she didn't seem like a big deal. People still recognize her. Well, I think... Like Michael Jackson kind of had a weird kind of comeback, though, too, but it's... Yeah, I mean, so I'm kind of a weird person to talk to about this because I'm obsessed with pop culture, and so... I You're did. the right person to talk uh, well, to. Well, like Pokemon, and there was a bunch of shit that existed at the like periphery, the edge of my periphery, where I was like aware of things. And then I'm married to a millennial, and so a lot of the there's there's a lot of overlap there. Mm-hmm. And you but, had a kid who was born in the early two thousands, yes, and so, I have a kid yeah. that's Gen Z, so yeah. I um, the generational UN. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so I think that the interesting thing to me is that. More and more, because and you see this in comic books too, and we've talked about it, right? Nothing leaves an indelible imprint on the culture. That mark, no matter how huge it is, will eventually be rubbed away by something else. I mean, you had uh, Kanye did the song with Paul McCartney, and you had a bunch of like millennials <laughs> being like, "Who's this Paul McCartney?" And it's like at one point, Paul McCartney was the biggest thing in the world. Like the Beatles were a, 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 a movement. Yeah. They were, I mean, like... You they, couldn't know who they are. Yeah. Ex- you, there was no way that you did not know who the Beatles were. And Paul McCartney was one of the, like... It's weird when you realize what a dinosaur certain people... Like, when you watch Goldfinger, there's a remark that Bond makes at the beginning of the movie, where he just takes this dismissive oh, yes, yes, remark about yes, the Beatles. About the Beatles, yeah. As if it's a stupid fad. <laughs> and it's, it's probably... Hashtag cancel James Bond. <laughs> it's weird. Of all the things you could cancel Sean Connery's James Bond it's for... drinking, he says... He, what does he say? He says, drinking uh, Dom Perignon at uh, anything higher than uh, It's like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs on. It's like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. And it's like, wow, dude. It's weird. (laughs) It's it's like weird. We're we're objecting to this more. And this is the exact same scene where he pushes a woman away by her face. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, It's like, you know, I'm pretty sure the Beatles haven't been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of women, James. I'm just saying. I don't want to call anybody out here, but I, I don't know, man. It's, it's so weird, though, because I, I think about this and I think about people who fall into the cancel culture discourse, especially older comedians from Gen X. It's our generation. We're the one of the fucking worst with oh, this. Oh, God, yeah. But I think it is it, it has everything to do with pop culture legacy. Yeah, I think it, it has does. everything to do with the fact that a lot of these guys, and Casey and I have had this conversation a thousand times, that... That when they were young, they were edgy and progressive, and the people who got angry at them were this, these older, religious, you know, public, uh, finger-wagging... Professional pearl clutchers. Yeah. Yes, they yes. were the types that just couldn't handle the truth that they were slinging. And <laughs> now that they're older, I think there's this this existential crisis that comes from realizing that you might kind of be turning into one of those people, and that... As you age, because the world changes around you, you have to make changes and introspective, you know, 
you have to have these exercises where you reevaluate yourself and your opinions as the world changes, or you will become one of those guys. Yeah. It is that Grandpa Simpson, it will happen to you. <laughs> right, speech. right. Old man yells at Cloud. Yes. And you see this happen over and over again, and there's a part of me that they just get so angry because they see all of these old like comedy albums that had gone platinum, possibly being thrown into the dustbin of history and going, oh my God, I'm not going to be important. All this stuff that made me famous and popular is going to be things that I have to disavow. And what do I have if I don't have this library of work? And I just go, nobody cares. <laughs> so this yeah. is- Elvis Presley was the biggest thing in the world until he wasn't. And this will happen to all of us. And it's the same thing. All of these, these U S senators and even presidents that think that you're forever going to be this icon that everyone will remember. And your, your, your pop culture or cultural or political footprint will echo through history. And the truth is it isn't that no. most presidents are forgotten. Nobody gives a fuck about Rutherford B. Hayes. Okay, you fucking take that back right now, goddammit. No, I was, uh, so, um, I've been watching a lot of Miyazaki movies lately. Nice. Uh, Were you going back through the, the Blank Check podcast yes, on Miyazaki? Yeah, I yeah. have been too. So, uh, Blank Check, which uh, I'll give them a shout out, it's a fantastic, I have never listened to a podcast where half the time I want to embrace the two sweet boys that are doing it, <laughs> and half the time I want to knock them together until they're both senseless, because they will say the stupidest shit some and they have like they will they will sing the praises of a movie like Avatar and say that it's a great film, which it is not, and I will fight anybody otherwise. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's like, a pretty it, film. It, it'll be like a dance fight. I'm not. Gonna, <laughs> but, yeah, it is a very pretty film, but it's also incredibly empty. It's but very. But then they'll empty. say something like Thor Ragnarok wasn't great, and Thor: The Dark World was better, and I'm like, you are high. <laughs> you are high is right now. Is that Chris Hemsworth meme? Is it though? Uh, but I think that when they're talking about Miyazaki. And when people are like, we want to preserve your legacy, and Miyazaki goes, I don't care. Right. Right? right. Like, when I die, Ghibli will be no more. The name means nothing. It was a plane. It's just a thing I did. Mm-hmm. And well, he, what, was, what was it that he said about the wind rises is that he was doing it because he wanted to leave. For his grandson. For, for his grandson. <laughs> it was about, not for anyone else. Like, why did you not, make this movie? Not for himself. He just Because I made it for my grandson because I wanted him to know that I loved him and right. thought about him because I'll be dead soon. <laughs> yeah. So like, he just spent six years of his okay. life and dozens of other people's lives because that's what it was. That's what it was about. It wasn't about being like, I'm going to be the most known Japanese film no, animator ever in history. Shit. No, no. And this is what like people call him. I, I went off on this the other day because people are like, people call him like the, the Walt Disney of Japan. And I'm like, fuck that. Walt Disney no. wasn't, was not worthy to hold Miyazaki's no. goddamn pencil. But I also am kind of like, yeah, like you look at somebody like Daniel Day Lewis who did Phantom Thread. And then he was like, I'm done. And yeah. people are like, oh, you can't be done. And it's like, no, he can't. You can't stop. You're still good. He doesn't want, like, why not go out on a on a high note? Like, why not? Well, I've got something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think everybody that, <laughs> I think everybody that is burned out would say, I wish I had just faded away. <laughs> I think Elvis would tell you. Uh-huh. No, I wish I, had. I When we were watching that movie, I could not, every time that Austin Butler opened his mouth, I could not he- help but hear this, the words, "It's a, am as real as a donut, motherfucker. <laughs> that's what he says in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he uses the same like drawl. He has the same drawl. I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. One thing I, I just keep coming back to in this question of legacy and immortality is it's just such a fool's game to think that you can it have is, it. It is. It all is. These, all these people, you know, 
there is only one U.S. senator that has any real notoriety that people still talk about, who still has a reputation, that still comes up in arguments, and it's Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. If, if, <laughs> that's there. If you, I mean, honestly, if we really, who are the mem- who are the people in history that people still know the names of, like Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar? <laughs> there really aren't that many. Adolf Hitler. Yeah. We yeah, still that's... have arguments about fucking Hitler, and half of the people having arguments about Hitler weren't alive when Hitler was alive. Yeah. So I mean, you kind of have to be a real piece of shit to get that mortality. Oh well, yeah, and I think really the only thing. Very few people have survived the scrutiny of history. Yeah, I think is what happens. I mean, look at look at Hitchcock. I mean, everybody in Hollywood knew what was happening with him and Tippi Hedren, but mm-hmm. then he died, and it was unspoken of for generations, you know, for decades. I th- and it was only until recently, and part I think part of it is like podcasting, right? As the advent of the podcast and people going back and kind of people that have an interest that are amateur film historians or people that have an interest in that era of Hollywood, but which is a also, fantastic one. But there is a, there is a place where capitalism intersects there, which is yeah, the, yeah. a lot of the old gatekeepers of media where you would have these discussions and reevaluate the ugly bits of this are often a lot of the people who profit from the continued popularity of older media. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't right. want to possibly You're... fuck up your ability to sell the Hitchcock library on DVD <laughs> or Blu-ray the or point, streaming. The question I ask myself more and more, and like, I I will go on record, I don't, I have not watched anything with Kevin Spacey in it since, since the allegations came out mm-hmm. about him. Fuck Woody Allen forever. I, if you like his early stuff, that's fine. I'm having I, I'm having real problems with Roman Polanski. I so, and Polanski is one that uh, Chinatown is one of my favorite movies ever. I can't. Yeah, it's he, like he is like uh, this is the thing. It's like the tip of the iceberg thing. Is we don't know. You don't know how many people who were uh, sort of 20th century big shots. How many like people they squashed? How many people they they violated in some way yeah, how many people absolutely. they use we don't end up knowing that chances are the number for most of them is greater than zero yes yeah. absolutely and that's that's the point i'm driving at is yeah. that i have really come to because when we were doing a uh, view from the gutters uh right after there was this whole thing about rock up church and a domestic violence he was the artist on rat queens mm-hmm. and there was a big to do about a domestic violence charge and canceling and all this stuff and it was it really, you know, the question is always separate the art from the artist. And I don't think that's the answer. I think that's bullshit. But I also do think there's this idea, especially among millennials, of the problematic fave, right? Mm-hmm. And it there comes a point is because we live on this ball that's floating through space that is rapidly imploding. And we're helping it. We're help. Oh, we're helping it along. it along. And so it's like if something brings you joy, I mean, Kirby's favorite movie is is Rosemary's Baby. I thought and you were going to say Triumph of the Will. Is Triumph of the Will. I mean, listen, you got to admit that Lenny Riefenstahl, she no, uh, she had incredible sense of framing. Okay, that's all yeah. I'm saying. Um, it was no. furorific. <laughs> um, but uh, I think uh, I still listen to Michael Jackson. Because mm-hmm. he was a huge part of my childhood, and I think he was fantastically talented. And I have to live with the fact that, yeah, like, in doing that, I also have to wrestle with the idea that he had inappropriate relationships with children. I watch Chinatown. I find it an incredibly moving movie. 
Like, I love China, superhero comics, knowing that a lot of these characters exactly, are created and, by people who are exploited for, and died yeah, in poverty. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And the thing is, is the, especially for Polanski, when you look at Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown to a certain extent, they're oddly feminist for a man that was sure. so garbage towards women. Sure. Mm-hmm. But like, I think you have to make that choice. At the end of the day, you've got to make the choice, and there's no logic to it. It's just, it's honestly like if I saw Woody Allen's face, that would immediately Ugh. turn me, I, I would immediately not want to watch the movie. There's one exception to that, which is the 60, I think it's 64, 67 Casino Royale mm. with oh, Peter yeah. Sellers and Orson Welles. I'm due for a rewatch on oh, that. And that's, yeah. I think that's just a fantastically like insane movie. And it's so much fun, but nothing. I don't, I just don't want to see his face, but no, I think I because, I think we have to make these choices for ourselves because those moments of happiness, those moments of uh, like we were taught, we've talked about men and men is a film that is wildly disparate in the way people viewed it. Yeah. But to me, there is nothing I love more than being able to watch a film and go, I want to understand every choice in this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of it too is that some people react really negatively to a movie that has a point of view that isn't, Tangential to their own. Yes. And I think that that is actually one of the most interesting and exciting pieces of fiction, which is that I can put my my brain behind the eyeballs of a person who is nothing like me. And then I experience what life looks like to a different person, that fiction is an empathy engine and that it's exciting and sometimes revelatory to understand how another person sees the world and that it's exciting rather than just seeing myself over and over and over again and never being challenged. Well, I think that's the beauty of film, right? Like this is when I, I took a, the last film class I took, I took it kind of like I audited the class. So I had to do more. So I think we were watching 10 films I watched an additional 10 films and then I gave a presentation and that was kind of the driving force behind it was film allows us to dissect the things about our culture that bind us, that drive us apart, that define us in a way in which there is a degree of separation. And so we can experience those things. We can do it without feeling like we are being attacked. But it's also a medium where the barrier to being able to make that connection is pretty low. The yes. bar is pretty low. Yes. Like with with this, uh, music is could also be the same too. I think music works in that respect, but there's usually less of a story being told, more of emotions. Right. The thing about a book, books are have have been that way that since written word has begun. But but books still have this barrier to entry around context and understanding. Yes. And the experiential thing of being like, this is sight, this is sound, these are characters, these are faces that I, you know, these are faces that I can recognize as the kind of faces that I see in my life. Um, film just kind of has that distilled. You yes. also have to say something yes. for it's the, it's the medium where, for the most part, someone who's illiterate can experience it. And that's, I think, there is this great, uh, there is this great leveling. There's, um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Eisenstein. I can't remember who did it was it was like because Einstein had the the montage theory, but it was the experiment where he would take a picture of a very famous Russian actor as a still and put it next to three other pictures. Like one was a picture of a woman, one was a picture of a bed, one was a picture of like food, like a bowl of soup, and then he asked people what's going on, and it's the same picture of the actor in each set, and in each one, when they when he's next to the soup, they're like, oh, he's hungry. 
And when he's next right. to the woman, they're like, oh, he longs for her. He's lonely. And it's like, we can do that because even, even a person that did not know how to read or write could make those assumptions, right? Pattern but recognition. It, yes. It, and, yeah. But it is a purely emotional connection. You're putting your, because somebody might look at that and go, Oh, he's full, right? Or right, and, and it says. I mean, culturally, I think there's an important thing there, but I also and think then you that, add music to it, and then of course, right. right? Yeah, because the original theory of montage was not did not have music. The music is largely an American invention, and especially invention. sound effects. I mean, where you ignore the fact that once you add sound effects, which is sort of that special way of tricking your brain into thinking that something that is just a series of images also has a world around you. It's also yes. building a world yes. around you. There was a there was a a fad on on YouTube probably about 15 16 years ago that was one of my favorite fads because it involved so much effort and it was people would make new trailers for older famous movies oh but change the background <laughs> they would misrepresent yes. the genre and tone oh, of the movie yes, yes. so they the did... shining is a yes, is the, like a romantic com- com- yes. or like a like a slice of life comedy and back to the future 3 is a weird homoerotic thriller <laughs> and they did one with oh, uh, sleepless in seattle is this like tense thriller yeah, that yeah. implies that meg ryan kidnaps a kid through editing yeah and they <laughs> just did it by changing the music they did one that was like a high school comedy out of the 10 commandments and (laughs) and, i mean they worked and that's what i kind of love is it just shows the power of the the context of both music and the order you show things in and the lines you choose that you can edit something into almost anything there was a a horror movie mary poppins yeah that was really good that was a great one and they even used music from mary poppins in it um and just used it in a spooky way (laughs) yes um And I, I like that. I, I think there's a creativity there, and I think that we can we can pull stuff. But kind of getting back to that question of legacy, um, I remember there was an interview. I think it was David Letterman, and David Letterman definitely has some skeletons in his closet. Oh yeah, sure yeah, yeah. Um, and there was that question that anybody who's over fifty in entertainment gets asked about their legacy and what do you want people to think about you. And I think there was this recognition that he brought up, and this is probably what started this whole thought process with me about and he said you know i'm gonna be forgotten one day and thank god yeah <laughs> and yeah it's such a healthy attitude and this is the thing is no matter what you've done everyone that knows you will be dead someday everybody yep eventually i mean think about how far back in your own your own family tree can you actually know anything about or remember a face yeah. And unless yeah. you're one of those people who are like so into finding out that Rutherford B. Hayes was your great, 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 great <laughs> grandfather, right, right. Um, nobody really gives a shit about that because even that person probably doesn't know that much about Rutherford B. Hayes except that he was president. Right. Um, you know, eventually it's like, Casey, you've got two kids. They're probably going to have kids someday. They're probably going to have kids someday. And by the time you get to like your kids' grandkids, you're probably going to be a faded photograph that people don't really remember. Maybe there's a copy digitally of this podcast somewhere. We can only hope. <laughs> but again, is any of this going to mean anything to anybody? Yeah. You know, from a from at that point. And you know what? I'm fine being totally forgotten at some point. You know, I, I yeah yeah. I always think that there's a scene in Imagine, the John Lennon documentary, where he's come down. There's a guy hanging around his front gate. And he's come down to talk to him. And this man is trying to impress upon John Lennon the impact that his songs have had on his life and about the deep meaning. And John Lennon is like, dude, I just 
write songs, man. Like I might wake up and have a great shit that morning. And then I write a song about the great shit I took. (laughs) And it's just this, it's this very weird honesty where he's like, I'm just a songwriter, right? Like I'm not trying to change. I'm not, I'm just writing songs about the shit I see. I can see though that being a, a understandable defense mechanism. Well, that yeah, you would, yeah, that you yeah. Would want, cause, cause this is, you're, you know, like this is like the, the John, uh, John Stewart defense thing where he's like, yeah. he's like, I don't, I don't have any real responsibility. My show comes on after crank. That yankers. always read as a cop out. Right. To me. No, 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 well, that's what I'm saying out. is you can say like, out. I don't bear any responsibility for things that he I do. He knows I just he wasn't do... just doing fart jokes. He <laughs> yes. knows it. But you know what I say? It's a, that, that seems John like a way Stewart, of deflecting, deflecting the fact that you do have power over yeah. people's right. lives. Of right. saying, well, well, I'm not, then, I'm just an ex. Dylan you know? did the same thing. Dylan yeah. didn't want, you know, Dylan didn't want the responsibility of being the so-called voice of a generation, even though. Many people that have well, you don't He's so- another one that's like, anybody that Joni Mitchell doesn't like, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I trust Joni Mitchell. <laughs> I mean, for everybody who goes to John Lennon and says, I love this music, it had a tremendous impact on me, you also have, like, Charles Manson and Helter Skelter. <laughs> right, so you, right, but you two, you, talk, you two took it back, Mike, don't you remember? You two took Helter Skelter back from Charles yeah. Manson. Everything's okay, Bono handled it. But you, you don't know who's at your door, and there's this party who goes... Oh God! Is this guy going to want to try to start a race war right, in the right, desert? Right, right, yeah. I don't because know. one day it's going to be Mark David Chapman, and that's going to be that. But yeah, and I think uh, occasionally you get a John Hinckley, and then you know <laughs> it's weird. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So um, John Lennon dot, dot dot in a multiplayer game. Yeah, when uh, when John Lennon lived in New York, he lived in a building called the Dakota, which is a very famous yeah. apartment building. In uh, you can see in, it from Central Park. Well, it's right. It's literally right across the street. Yeah. And right across the street is Strawberry Fields, where they sprinkled his ashes. The Dakota, also the building from Rosemary's Baby. Hmm. Ooh. So bringing when, it back around. Yeah, yeah. So it's that's all the exterior. Oh, well, I think some of the exterior shots are another famous apartment building, but uh, the interiors were, I think, all at the Dakota. I uh, might have gotten that back. I, I want to wrap this up by saying I hope this is a story I have not told on Mike before, but I will say that the I've been living in Seattle for quite a long time now, and I was from I was in L.A. for a while before that, but I've only ever once seen someone physically ejected from a bar in West Seattle, and the occasion was is that there were two men that had were I assume were strangers until they came to the bar, got drunk, and started arguing, and the argument was whether Mark David Chapman was a serial killer or not. And the, one, the person who is contending that, that he was is that he had a whole list of people to kill. John Lennon was just one of them. And so therefore, if he hadn't been caught, he would have been a multiple multiple homicide killer, multiple killer. Right, and right. the other person was like, it doesn't count. He only killed one person. This escalated into a shoving match, and then the bartender pushed both of them out the door. Which is the <laughs> best answer to that argument. <laughs> is it? Is it awful that I have an opinion on this issue? <laughs> and we're going to fight over it, and it stops the podcast? No, but um, I, the, the counter argument I would have thrown if I was there is if he had failed to kill John Lennon, would you still call him a serial killer? Oh. Well, and, and I think that's a mass murderer. That's not a serial killer. Yeah. A serial killer is somebody that has a modus operandi, not somebody that just runs around New York City shooting celebrities. Yeah. Like, I like, think like, each, each, if it be a serial I killer. I disagree! <laughs> Let's go! <laughs> Flip the table. But yeah, it's... I, I guess if I was going to say it, I'd say a serial killer is someone where each... It's not like a mass shooter is a serial killer. No. Um, no. You ha- each killing has to be a separate event. Yes. It's but, about ritual. Yeah. So, Jesus Christ.
Well, I want to tell a story real quick to bring us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about my girlfriend in Canada. (laughs) And Mike said Kirby's probably going to listen to this. She probably won't. I she might. She watched Raw Deal with me, but so nobody who's on this show listens to this show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when Kirby and I were getting married, and you know, Kirby, Kirby has been uh, was on Junior. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were getting married, we sent out invitations, and we used her actual name. Uh, I won't blow it up here because it's not my place to do that, and it keep, lets her keep her mystique. Mm. But I had several friends reach out to me and be like, who is this person? And does Kirby know about them? And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's that's Kirby. Did you, did you think that I had a secret fiance and was hanging out with you with my side piece? That would be weird for me, especially since you comprise the majority of my friend group. Like, why would I... Why would I invite you to a wedding of a person you had never met (laughs) when you knew Kirby? That seems weird. And I get that some of them were like polygamous or like uh, polyamorous. Sure. And so it's like maybe, you know, they they didn't want to make an assumption. But it was like this very Olympia moment where people were like... is, does this person know about Kirby? I'm this like, could also yeah. be like an Arthur type situation where your millionaire parents are forcing you to marry the heiress. I mean, that's that's also true, um, and that did happen to me. But that's a story for another time. I was a, a drunk socialite once in in New York sure. uh, and with a top hat and everything. And uh, I, I think we should we should probably make an announcement to close out this one. But this is the very last public fun size episode oh we're going underground yeah uh we, we are um that I, I guess it's probably a good time to mention that for people who have been supporting us on patreon you guys have been remarkably patient yeah and, and tolerant ta- yes yes after especially after a time uh when we weren't actually producing anything the fact that you guys still kept it going and kept giving the show an income is just Awesome. So heartwarming. So these fun size episodes are going to continue, but they are going to be a Patreon exclusive starting next month. And uh, we want to thank all the people who have been patient with us. But oftentimes we would have like one fun, you know, one exclusive Patreon episode come out in a year. Yeah. And it didn't feel like it was enough. So we want to, if you want to continue listening to a lot of fun, unfocused bullshit like this from us. Uh, Patreon is the place to go with it, and all that information's in the end credits. Right. But and then we also are going to have some surprises coming up in the next few months. It's hard next to tell. Year. Is I'm wearing a chicken costume? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we do have a lot of cool stuff coming up, and we'll catch you guys later. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. Ha, 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 ha.